All right, grab a Bible. There's Bibles in front of you. We're going to look as we continue our Psalm series this morning in Psalm 20 to Psalm 29. It's just a little before page 550 in the Bibles in front of you. This is a fascinating, highly poetic psalm. Actually, it's the thunderstorm psalm. Perfect for living in Chicago. I was looking at the weather forecast, and do you know they're uh, projecting right now thunderstorms? Um, sorry to discourage you, uh, for five of the next seven days. So now I am giving you God's response, how you need to respond for this coming week. I'm just trying to prepare you for your week, okay? You're going to be frustrated. I hate these, I hate these, and, and here we have God's word. We're going to look at this. Are you ready? Let's start in verse 1, Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. What we seem to have here is David looking out over the Mediterranean, the mighty waters, the Mediterranean Sea, and watching a thunderstorm move in from west to east. And he continues, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, these huge trees. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon, the mountains of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf. Syrian. Now, Syrian is an ancient reference to Mount Hermon in the northern part of Israel. Um, like a, uh, let's see, Syrian, like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oak, strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry, Glory. And this was the refrain in what we were just singing. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood that would be Noah's flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Now this is 11 verses, a short psalm, but it's 11 verses of straight worship. So today what I want to do is I want to talk to you about this elusive subject of worship. Why is it elusive? Because you and I look at a thunderstorm and we see a thunderstorm. David looks at a thunderstorm and sees God. And it becomes a worship experience. So what I want to do with this psalm is I want to talk about three things. First of all, I want to talk, I want to begin with our difficulties with worship. Then I want to look at, at David's diary, David's incredible strength of worship revealed here in 29. And then I want to conclude by talking about the key to a life on, of ongoing worship. You and I have two difficulties with worship. You have them, I have them. And the first is that we misunderstand it. We reduce it. We tend to think worship is a religious event for religious types rather than a 24-7 way of life that characterizes each and every one of us whether we like it or not. We hear the word worship like we see in verse 2 and we think church service. We think it's an 
outward activity, something you have to get in your car and drive to. But the Bible says, no, 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 no. We are all worship. We are not people who will occasionally worship. Each and every one of us are fundamentally worshipers who always worship. Now let me illustrate this uh, relative to what Paul says about us as believers. Look at this passage, Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Paul says, continually offering your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. He's not talking about worship as an event. He's talking about worship as a way of life. A way of life. In other words, worship is always an identity before it's an activity. And there is no such thing, I'm going to say this as strongly as I can, there is no such thing as a non-worshiping human. The only thing that distinguishes us, divides us, is what we worship. That's because worship, what is worship? Worship is assigning worth. You worship what you think is worthy, what you think is important, what you think is significant. You worship what you attach your dreams, your hopes, your, your, your goals to. What you think will give you life. Money, um, uh, fame, fortune, jobs, whatever. To those things you at least metaphorically bow the knee, you surrender your life. Uh, you tell me how you spend your weekends, you tell me how you spend your, your weekdays, what goes on in your mind, what goes on in your heart, I'll tell you what you worship. All of us are worshipers, each and every one of us. Worship is a way of life, it's, it's not merely an event. Now at this point, the Bible gets very specific and tells us there are ultimately only two objects of worship for all of us. One is the creator, that's who David is worshiping here. The other is some part of God's creation. Creator, creation. Look at how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worship and serve created things rather than the creator. That's the story of human history. That's what's going on in our world today. All the things that frustrate you, scare you, uh, horrify you, are because instead of worshiping the creator, we worship, we live in a world where the vast majority of humanity worship creation, some part of it. Now, if you know Jesus Christ, what this means is there is always a worship war going on inside of you. It's, it's true for all of us, especially those of us that know Christ. Am I going to give myself today to worship the creator or am I going to pursue for significance, meaning, and peace some part of creation? Creator, creation. There's a battle going on in every single one of us that will go on until we move, transcend into the presence of Jesus Christ. Now in our psalm, what's so beautiful about Psalm 29 is that David is giving himself completely to the creator. So our first problem is we misunderstand it. Our, our, our second problem is that our worship over time tends to slow or, or, or tire or fizzle because we let our problems trump our hearts. Our, our, our troubles trump our worship. 
Now let me illustrate this. Let's go back in the Old Testament. It's a glorious, phenomenal moment in the history of, uh, 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 of Israel when God is giving Israel the promised land. It's a beautiful land, a land Israel didn't earn, a land Israel didn't deserve. Uh, so God sends 12 spies, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel into the land to bring back a report to prepare people to move into the land to fight the battles. 10 of the 12 spies say, no way! Uh, the people are too big. The cities are too fortified. They're too strong. They're too powerful. Uh, never mind God. We can't do this. We will be crushed. Now think about that. It was the most wonderful moment of grace. God has given him the promised land in the history of young Israel. Yes, it was full of risks. but they couldn't see it. Now hear me in this. What they saw as being in the way of God's plan was in fact a part of God's plan. Uh, what they, uh, they, they saw that caused their faith to weaken was actually God's tool to build their faith. Yeah, it was risky. Yeah, there were going to have to be battles, but it was all part of God's plan. God intends challenge in your life, problems in your life, not as an enemy to destroy you, but as a tool of grace to complete you. But you and I miss this, and so instead of worshiping God, uh, when things are difficult, when we're frustrated, um, when we get discouraged, we tend to back away from God, and we don't worship God like David is worshiping God here because we have let trouble trump our hearts. And frankly, um, we come to a psalm like 29, a psalm like this psalm, Psalm 29, and it reads like words from a foreign planet. So we have two difficulties with worship, each and every one of them. I, I do. And the first is it's a, a, a priority thing. Our priorities get messed up. Am I going to worship the Creator? Am I going to worship part of His creation? And the second is we have this emotional, this visceral thing where our problems make us discouraged, make us, we won't say it, but make us mad at God. And if you read this psalm as we've just read it, and it doesn't stir you, I want to encourage you to challenge your heart in these two areas, skewed priorities and overinflated problems are worship killers. For all of us. And we need to see that to appreciate what goes on here with David. So now let's turn to David's worship, this diary, this remarkable description of David's worship. Who was David? Well, David was one of the most influential people who's ever lived. 
If David was the king when he wrote this, and I think because of his emphasis in verse 10 on the throne, he just might have been king. If he was king, then he was busy, he was burdened, he had the weight of this little bitty young nation with so much at stake on his shoulders. But regardless of whether he was king or not, what captured his heart What captured David's heart wasn't fame or fortune. It was the living God in the middle of a Middle Eastern thunderstorm. 18 times in these 11 verses, David uses the name of God, Yahweh. Uh, The all-sufficient, sovereign, majestic king of kings. Seven times in these 11 verses, he uses this phrase, the voice of the Lord. It's a a metaphor, it's a reference to the power of God. It's a, a picture of thunder. Furthermore, when you look at these verses, there are no petitions, there are no requests, there is no lament, it's just flat, straight out worship. Now, David did not live like this all the time. None of us can live like this all the time. But whether he was a young man, a shepherd, or a muscled, seasoned warrior king, David was completely consumed with the towering majesty of God. It's Psalm 29. So what is worship? Well, what we see here is worship is All that you are responding to all that God is. All that you are responding to all that God is in reverence and awe, in humility and and surrender. Worship is so living in the presence of God, so being aware of the power of God, uh, so so captured with awe by the, the love of God that a thunderstorm becomes a church service. So I don't want to hear any of you complaining this week when it storms. (laughs) Now you've seen the commercial, the most interesting man in the world, David, was the most interesting man in the world in his day and for centuries beyond, bar none. One of the most interesting men that has ever lived. But what made David so interesting, what makes any of us so interesting, was his awareness of his worship, of his reverence for the living God. Now why? Why was David like this? Why do we read a psalm like this and and kind of, well, okay, that's nice, but man, that's just a little weird. What was different with David? I want to move through this psalm now and suggest three things. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, David had a dominant heaven orientation, dominant heaven orientation, an eternity glory orientation that was just incredible. In verses 1 and 2, we have one thought repeated four times. It's Hebrew parallelism. And the thought is that God is worthy, God alone is worthy of worship. But what is unique here and so interesting is David appeals to the angels. Look at verse 1. This phrase, almighty ones, most commentators tell us, is a reference to the angels. And we don't know if David had direct experience with angels. But what David is doing is addressing the angels. He's emailing the angels, texting, tweeting. 
Hey, you angelic beings, you who serve in the very presence of God, the very throne of God, you who um, are, are, are so amazing beyond description, you know that God is transcendent, God is majestic, God is superior to anything in the universe, including you. So join me in worshiping him. Let's do it together. You see, David knew he wasn't alone. David knew uh, that this planet isn't all there is. David knew that when we die, we're not returning to dust. Uh, David knew that God stands above the universe, above everything in the universe. So David emails the angels, hey, let's worship together. David was a worshiper because he lived in light of heaven. Second, in verse 3, now we come into the body of this psalm through verse 9. We see, we move from David's heaven orientation to David's power orientation, as in divine power, because David locks on the towering power of God. He had a fundamental power orientation. Now, parents, let me just say something to you. You got little kids? This is a great psalm to read to your kids during a storm. Do you like storms, Johnny? But what I want you to, to, to note with, with your children, if you want to go this route, is that David's dominant mood in this psalm isn't fear, it's worship. Great teaching opportunity. This storm was a massive thing. And, and David, um, either in the hills or the coastal hills or along, along the coast, watches this storm come, as I said, from west to east across the Mediterranean. And then it hits in the northern part of Israel, uh, the mountains of Lebanon, Mount Hermon. And then it moves south all the way to the desert, the desert of Kadesh. And using some incredible poetry, David describes huge cedar trees as, as breaking, forests laid bare. Uh, he describes mountains as dancing and skipping and the desert shaking, all pointing to the incredible power of God, which he knows is even beyond a thunderstorm. Now do not, do not, do not miss this. Uh, David knows that God gives us nature to communicate himself. David knew that God gave us the universe to reveal himself. Uh, and David was so, his faith was so bright, vibrant, uh, he, he was so alive in the presence of God, so aware of the power of God, that David saw God in everything, including a thunderstorm. But we see this over and over in some of these psalms. Go back 10 psalms. Let's look at Psalm 19. Look at how David talks about the same thing differently. 
He says at the beginning, the heavens declare the glory of God. Now you guys, uh, most people today see the stars and the sun and the moon. And what do they see? Well, they see the stars, the sun, and the moon. David says, no, 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 you're missing the point. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. David is saying, God gave you the sun, you the moon, you the stars to reveal himself to you. Early American uh, pastor and theologian, the great Jonathan Edwards, picked up this biblical theme. And it became a, 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 a key component of his Um, belief in God, a key part of his life. And he said this, I'll put the statement up here. The universe is as full of the images of divine things as languages of words. Think about that. So every place Jonathan Edwards went, whether he was looking at roses or whether he was looking at rainbows, whether he was looking at sunrises or sunsets, he saw the living God. He saw that creation was a metaphor for God. You see, David understood, uh, Edwards after him, as the Bible teaches that this is Jesus Christ's world. He is everywhere. Now, some people see a thunderstorm and they, they get scared. Some people look at stars and they get scientific. David looks at all of that and he sees God. Do you? What do you see around you? Now, let me take this a step further because what David is doing is the antidote, it reveals the antidote to our struggle with hope, our struggle with discouragement, our struggle with unbelief. You and I don't have a fundamentally a hope problem. We don't have a, a discouragement problem. We don't even, at the end of the day, have an anger problem or a marriage problem. What we have is a sight problem. We see, but we don't see. Hope has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Hope isn't a thing. It isn't a better set of circumstances, a different set of circumstances. Jesus came and faced what defeats you in order to rescue you and to infuse into your life a life of hope. So you have hope because Jesus exists, because Jesus came, because Jesus died for your sins. And Jesus Christ is in every storm. He is in every situation. He is your constant savior and companion. And that's a sight thing. What Psalm 29 reveals is David's spiritual sight. David, if he was the king, he had enormous stresses, enormous pressures, uh, challenges, problems. But he did not have a sight problem. He saw God in the chaos. He saw God, the living God, in a thunderstorm. And it became a worship experience. That is the antidote to your struggle with hope, discouragement anger. And and if you're here and and you find yourself saying to yourself, you know, I don't see the power of God in my own life. Man, listen to this psalm. 
Open your eyes and look at the power of God revealed all around you and get your eyes off yourself. Every day, all day long, church service, all around you. See it. Uh, believe it. Let me go on. David had this orient, heaven orientation. He had a power orientation. In the last two verses, verses 10 and 11, what we see is that David was a worshiper because he had a sovereignty orientation. He knew God was in control. Now, I do not know who your king is. If it's you or God, and if you're like me, uh, theoretically it's God, but sometimes you get into different situations and you start acting like you're the king. I, I see this in my own life all the time, and it's just appalling. So who, who is your, your king? Uh, frankly, you can find out quickly by uh, looking back and, and seeing how you spend your weekends, how you spend your weekdays. What consumes your energy, your, your passion? That, that'll tell you who your king is. But what I want you to see is in verses 10 and 11, David states unequivocally that God is his king. And he, as a man, will rest in the strength and the peace God provides because he knows strength and peace doesn't come from ourselves. This experience that David lands with of strength and peace, something we all uh, want, uh, is a function of our confidence in the sovereignty, the reign, the control of God. God's in control. And that, that confidence in the sovereignty, the control of God, is fueled by our, our awareness of the power of God, the majesty of God, the, the bigness of God. My God is big enough. He can handle this. Now let me illustrate this interaction between the power and the sovereignty of God and, and strength and peace in our lives. And I, I want to go back to something Paul Tripp said in his devotional, New Morning Mercies. And if you don't have this devotional, I want you to go out, sell your car, and get this book. <laughs> he goes back, actually, um, to, to the book of Exodus. And he uh, describes this verse in Exodus chapter 11 as one of the strangest verses in the Bible relative to the power of God. It's an unbelievable moment in Israel's history where um, uh, the Egypt, the country of Egypt, is experiencing the ten plagues. And God is in the process of redeeming his people uh, out of Egypt. And it's a time of tremendous turmoil for Egyptians and Israelis and if, if you were an Israelite in that day you would be wondering am I going to live through this or am I going to die is God going to free us or, or not and then right before the last plague that will cause the Pharaoh to let Israel go God says this look at these two verses there will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be, but among the Israelites, not a dog, now notice that, will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Now keep that up there for a moment. What kind of power, what kind of authority uh, does God have? 
in Psalm 29, our psalm, it's a power that is pictured in a thunderstorm, massive thunderstorm, even greater than the power of the thunderstorm. Here in Exodus 11, it's the power to not only silence the growl of every single dog in Egypt, but to enable that dog to distinguish between a Jew and an Egyptian. Can't bark at that guy, he's a Jew. You talk about incredible power, that's the power of our living God. Now, if God has a power to direct all the dogs in Egypt, if God has a power that, that we just get a foretaste of, just a glimpse of in a thunderstorm, God has a power to protect you. God has a power to get you through what you need to get through. God has a power to provide for you. God has a power to take care of you. God has a power to get you to the other side of your deal. And when you know that, what does it do? It gives you strength and peace. That was a point in Exodus 11. It's a point here in Psalm 29. And so when David lands this psalm in verse 11 and he talks about the strength and the peace of God, it's an experiential thing. And what he is saying is David is revealing that he knows that God knows who his people are. He is revealing that he knows that God knows what his people need. And will marshal the resources to meet their needs. Uh, if you're a parent, a, a, a grandparent, uh, you worry regularly about your kid's safety. Uh, think about this. God never worries about you. Never has ever worried for one second about you. He can handle you. He will handle you. I mean, soak this in. Our problem, as others have said, isn't our, our, our weakness. God's power, God's sovereignty is, is up to whatever comes our way. Our problem as followers of Jesus Christ, I'm talking to the church now, is our delusion of strength, our arrogance. The only person who is shocked by your weakness is you. Not God, because God never created us to be independent. God never created us to be uh, autonomous, to have all the answers. He created us to be dependent and to go through life with lots of questions that we hold loosely because we rest in him. He gives me strength. He gives me peace. And experiencing this uh, strength and this peace that God offers us um, because of his grace, is a product of your confidence in the potency of God. And when you get that, you know what will happen? You may not uh, um, uh, immediately rest and relax, but over time you're going to rest and relax in the goodness of God because you will be a person, you have seen God in the storm. I have seen God in the storm. You will see God in the storm. All right, that brings me to my third and final point. Something I've got to be really clear about, and that is what is the, the key, according to the Bible, to an ongoing life of worship? Because if you're like me, you tend to, to read this psalm and you think, you know, that's not me. Man, I, I don't live this way. 
so, so what's the key? The key uh, starts with understanding just that, that, that you and I aren't equal to this. That we are worship challenged. We are worship deficient. We will never live this way on our own. And the key to, to understand, and this is a um, Bible interpretation issue, that the entire Old Testament always, always points to Jesus. And so when we read a psalm like this, we ask ourselves a question, how does this point to Jesus? And the way this points to Jesus is to see that ultimately this storm points to the greater storm that Jesus endured for you and me. Or or let me say it more technically, more specifically. The power revealed in this storm points to the greater power revealed in the rescue operation of Jesus Christ on planet Earth. The Jesus rejection, betrayal, torture, and death. Talk about a storm that he voluntarily bore for, for your sins by dying in your place and in my place for our sins. And that means supernaturally raised from the dead. The resurrection power. So Psalm 29 points, the power of Psalm 29 points to the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus said to God, I'll go. And I'll bear their storm. And I'll undergo the greatest storm in the universe. I love them that much. I'll do it. And and so when you look away from yourself and and you see Jesus, uh, Jesus dying on the cross in your place for your sins to give you this forgiveness, this righteousness, this eternal life. And when you continue to look at Jesus in this resurrected power and glory and you look to Jesus each and every day of your life and let his incredible love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and righteousness continually wash over you, then with David you will say, yes, I know in experience that God gives his people strength, that God blesses his people with peace. So what I am saying is I am not asking you in any way to suck it up and try to do better with worship. Because you can't. You won't. I can't. I won't. I'm inviting you instead to take your eyes off yourself and to look to Jesus and to see him. And the depths of his love for you revealed in the storm he underwent for you. And as you keep your eyes on Jesus, you will become a Psalm 29 worshiper. All right? Thunderstorms are coming. You have this opportunity this week to see Jesus, okay? Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you for the wonder of your word, uh, for how crazy practical it is. 
I mean, who would think that we would have a psalm about how to respond to thunderstorms that really is a, a psalm about how to look at life? So God, we ask that you would give us the grace to see you, to worship you in the midst of the storm. Amen.